0: Hey, Crosswalk, thanks for being here. It's so good to be with you today. Seriously, every week I'm blown away by all of the places you're joining from, and I just wanna thank you so much for being a part of this online community. For those I haven't met, my name is Tom Quishenberry, and I've had the incredible privilege of being one of the pastors here at Crosswalk Redlands for almost eight years. In fact, my brother Mike and I just grew up about a mile down the street from here. My parents still live in the same house. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Kim, and have two amazing daughters, Bailey, who's living in the Pacific Northwest, and Shawnee, who's a senior in high school. I just have to say that you all are an amazing community of Jesus followers, and my family is so blessed to share this adventure at Crosswalk with you. Well, today we're in the third week of our Faith by Design sermon series from the Book of James. As always, we'll be working out of the New Living Translation. And just to catch you up, the book of James was written by Jesus' brother James, who was a leader in the Jerusalem church. Now, James was writing this book to first century Jewish Christians who had been scattered all over outside of Palestine. And what was the reason they had moved away from their home country? Because of all the persecution for their faith in Jesus. And many of these Christians had been a part of James' church in Jerusalem. So as you can imagine, These Christians were living under great stress. They were persecuted for their faith. Their lives and freedom were in danger. They had to move away from their homes. They left their jobs. Their families were uprooted. And now they were living in a new country. Last week, we ended James uh, assuring us that these believers had value and identity in God. In verse 18, James says, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Or, as the NIV says, that we might be a kind of first fruit of all he created. Now, James is telling these scattered believers that they are God's children. They're his prized possession. They are the first fruits of all he created. Okay, that last one probably doesn't sound like much of a compliment. First fruits isn't exactly a common term of endearment today. But these Christians would have understood exactly what James meant. You see, first fruits were the first part of the crops to ripen before the harvest. And these first fruits were given as an offering, as an act of worship to God, and also as a blessing on the rest of the harvest that year. So as James prepares to give us directions on how to live, we have to understand that it's in this context of this identity that God gives us. Our identity is that we are God's loved and prized children who are called to live our lives as an act of worship and as a blessing to the whole world. This gives us a great perspective on what comes next in this book. So let's jump into our text for today. James begins by leading us into a discussion on the importance of good communication. Now, this was a super important issue for James. And we know this because this is just the first of many times in his book that he brings up this topic. In fact, we're going to be studying this issue of guarding our speech a whole lot more before we finish the book of James. You know, recently, there was a story in the news that demonstrates the incredible value of good communication. Or maybe I should say, it shows the incredible danger of bad communication. It seems that there was a 64-year-old Frenchman who is about to retire from the French defense industry. So, as a surprise retirement gift, after years and years of service, his coworkers arranged for the most memorable gift they could possibly think of. A gift that you have to have some serious connections to acquire. What was it? They got him a backseat ride in a supersonic Dassault Raphael fighter jet. Super cool, right? Well, actually, here's where the landslide of communication failure began. You see, apparently nobody ever asked Monsieur Retiree if he even wanted to ride in a fighter jet. He didn't. In fact, he was so scared that his heart rate was 140 beats per minute just climbing into the fighter. But this was one of those surprise gifts it's pretty hard to back out of. After a quick physical, the 64-year-old was cleared to fly. As long as the fighter didn't pull more than three Gs and there was no negative G at all, none. So, any guesses as to whether these guidelines were followed? (laughs) Well, next, there was not clear communication as to how to put on his flight suit. So, upon entering this $16 million hyper-sophisticated jet, his G-suit pants weren't even on correctly. And more than that, his helmet and oxygen mask were completely unbuckled. To top it all off, as the fighter took off from the runway, his seat harness was loose. Well, once they got airborne, the fighter pilot, being a fighter pilot, immediately pulled the jet into a 47 degree climb that pulled a 3.7 G load, which, if you'll remember, was over the 3G medical limit that was communicated. Immediately after being pushed into his seat by over three and a half times his body weight, now the fighter leveled off, which created a negative G load. Once again, against medical communication. Now, negative Gs cause you to feel like you're being pulled out of your seat. And since his seat harness was loose, the retiree felt like he was going to fly out of the jet which as it turned out was a bit of foreshadowing because evidently the communication regarding cockpit safety was either poorly delivered or the very scared gift recipient was having an incredibly hard time listening. Either way, it was not adequately communicated to him that that black and yellow striped loop in the middle of the seat there between his legs, that was not a grab handle, not a grab handle, nope. That was the trigger for his Martin Baker, Mark 16 ejection seat. Yep, and once again, the poor retiree found himself far exceeding his 3G limit as the seat rocket motors fired and shot him and his seat out of the jet and into the sky above the French countryside. The good news is that our hero parachuted to safely, but he only had minor injuries. The bad news? is that I don't know if he's ever resumed communication with any of his former coworkers. Now, James speaks of the importance of communication in a very different context, but he's also incredibly clear that the consequences can be just as catastrophic. Let's look at verse 19. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Obviously, good, positive communication is important. And James shows us how important this issue is by how he begins the discussion. James begins by expressing affection. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, these are people he cares about deeply. And so he wants them to hear this message. And then he gives them direction. Understand this, or take note of this. These directions are something that they need to follow. And then James applies it inclusively. He says, you must all. This is a message for all of us. So, what is it we must all do? James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. For the first, but not the last time in this book, James talks about the destructiveness of an uncontrolled tongue. And his advice all starts with this, listening. It all starts by telling us to just be silent. He says, in fact, don't just listen. Don't just settle for listening. Be quick to listen. Listen first. Listen before we speak. Listen before we get angry. Now, when he says anger here, we're not talking about what James calls human anger. Well, that is what we're talking about, human anger. Then this is an anger um, that is about us. It's not an anger about sin or injustice. Anger about sin and injustice, that's fine. We should be angry about those things. No, this is an anger that's focused on me, about how I've been wronged. Some call it a selfish anger. I didn't win the argument, or I feel offended, or I feel neglected, or I, you get the idea. Here's the issue, anger is about me, speaking is about me, but listening, really listening is about you. Have you ever been in a conversation where the other person only talks about themselves and they never once ask about about you or show any interest in you? How do you feel in those situations? Those are never very fulfilling or meaningful conversations, are they? Well, imagine how much more important it is then to listen during a discussion or disagreement where there is so much more at stake. Why? Because listening is showing value. Listening chooses humility. Listening displays love. It's no wonder that James says, Be quick to listen. Listening does so much more to encourage understanding, restoration, and healing. There's a very important reason now that James brings up the value of controlling our tongues right here at the beginning. It's because stress makes us want to do the exact opposite of what he's just said. Under stress, we're quick to speak, and under stress, we're especially quick to get angry. How many times have you experienced somebody get angry with you and you're thinking, what could I have possibly done to make you that angry? You've barely even talked with me. There was a time when I was just driving at the speed of traffic in a middle lane on a uncrowded four-lane highway, and all of a sudden I have this pickup truck flying up right behind me and the driver's waving his arms and not exactly using his um, church words. He he was obviously very angry that I was in the way in his lane that he had chose to use even though he could have easily just gone around me. And seriously, he must have been driving like 90 miles an hour. This guy's anger was just all out of proportion to what was happening. I hadn't done anything and suddenly there's a man yelling at me in my rearview mirror. Now, I'm sure those of you in hospitality or service occupations, you've experienced stories like this more times than you can possibly remember or you care to remember. It's because people are really experiencing stress that they can't control in other parts of their lives. And they're just unloading it on you and me. And if you find that you're the one who is most often leading with this kind of anger, that you're the one who's getting angry so quickly and out of proportion, maybe it's time to put a name on it and own what the actual source of your anger is. It might even be the perfect time to seek out some professional help, to find healing or resolution to whatever that stress or hurt is, and then break out of that cycle that's leading with anger. Well, getting back to the text, let's be clear that these early Christians were experiencing a ton of stress. It was from all the persecution and the challenges in their lives at this time. And look, let's also be very honest, so are we. We're in the middle of a global pandemic, Every day we're hearing about new COVID cases and the growing death toll. We've all had a lack of social contact for several months now. And we probably know people who've been sick. And we're all missing being together to worship. Then there are all the job losses and a lot of financial strains. And we are again wrestling with the reality of racial inequalities and the social unrest that inevitably follows to bring about change. Today, So many people are scared or hurting or stressed or angry. And James is concerned that this would lead them and us to relational conflicts that could lead to sin against others. Now, this was to be applied both to the unbelieving persecutors and to the fellow believers. See, James wants them to maintain purity toward enemies as well as friends because that's the way of Jesus. Today, it's way too easy for our trials and stress and anger to lead us to see people only as issues or sides or enemies rather than seeing all people as children of God that Jesus died to save. But if we aren't first focusing on people as people and the way Jesus' mission is calling you and me to love in any given situation, then we're missing our calling. James says at the end of verse 20 that this does not produce the righteousness God desires. And this is why James goes on to say in verse 21, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. Look, James wants us to remember that we are surrounded by evil in this world. It's like we're swimming in it. It's all around evil that leads to death. So we need to get rid of it. It's just logical. And how do we do this? James says we need to humbly accept God's word that God has already planted in the believer's heart, in our hearts. This is a call to focus on the Bible and the good news of Jesus and the salvation he provides. And then James explains this deeper with a really interesting illustration. He starts it in verse 22 and he says, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it is like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. Okay, that's a little unusual. What in the world does he possibly mean when he says that? What James is saying is that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, what we see isn't something we have to remember and take with us as we go about our business of the day. We can look, about our, look at our appearance and then just forget about it. In fact, sometimes we wanna look at our appearance and truly forget about it. We, we don't always like exactly what we see, but what James is saying is we just don't need to keep thinking about what we look like because what we look like is useless for the work of the day. James tells us, in other words, look, Don't treat God's word this way. Don't hear God's word of salvation and then live your life as if God's word is completely useless. Let's put it another way. It would be like a spouse saying that while they're at home, they'll acknowledge that they're married and they value their spouse and their marriage. But once they leave the house, they don't believe they need to live as if they're married. Doesn't make any sense, right? And if you're not clear on this and why it doesn't make sense, just ask your spouse, but I suggest you be ready to run when you ask. I'm pretty sure they can clear up the error of your thinking really quickly. Look, when we value something, we live out that value. If we say we're committed, but don't live out our commitment, we're just fooling ourselves. Or as James says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Well, James continues this thought in verse 25. He says, But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Now this is just a super practical approach to God's word. This is classic James. Do what the word says and you'll be blessed, right? Let's use our marriage illustration again. In the marriage, you all want the blessing of a good marriage. And there are things that go into making it good. When you love someone, you want to get to know them better. Because, well, there's so much you realize that you don't know and you want to know it all. When you remember um, when you remember that what it was like when we first met, right? We first meet and we want to talk forever. We talk for hours, we ask questions, and we try to understand the other person. You want to know what makes them tick. You want to know what makes them happy and fulfilled. You, non- you want to know what their dreams are. But, as you get to know each other better, you tend to assume that you know it all already, that all you really need to know is there, and it's easy just to stop learning. And well, we all know that's not going to end well, right? We need to keep learning about each other through the entire relationship. Why? Because there's always more to learn. People don't stay static. There's more to understand. We have to do it. Why? Because this makes a relationship grow deeper. But hearing all these amazing things about the one you love isn't gonna be of much use if you don't remember them. There are things you need to remember. Remember their birthday. Remember your anniversary. Write that one down. Remember how many kids you have. That's kind of important. Remember what buttons not to push. Remember what gives them joy in life. What makes them feel loved and valued. And there's so many more. But all this knowledge doesn't do much good if you don't do something with it. So, you need to take all you've learned and you need to actually put it all into practice. You see, living out what you know helps the relationship grow stronger for both of you. And this is exactly what James is trying to tell us, the very same thing. Right here in James, he gives us four steps for being blessed. First, grow deep. The words James uses here actually, look intently. Here, James is again alluding to this whole metaphor of looking into a mirror. But this time, he says, we're looking into the word of God itself. So we need to look intently because this time it matters for everything else. This is the word that gives freedom. So it's worth a deep look. In other words, being blessed all begins with us spending time with God. Second, don't stop. James literally says, continue to do this. God's word doesn't just deserve a deep look. We need to continue to look. There's always more to learn. There's always more to understand. This isn't a time for kind of a one and done mentality. We need to keep looking and keep learning. Why? Because continued time with God is what transforms us. And third, don't forget. James is saying, Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other, right? We know that doesn't go well. Learn what God has to say. Remember what God asks of us. And fourth, do it. The literal reading makes this clear. I love this. Literally, the text reads, being not a hearer of forgetfulness, but a doer of action. So good. Say it again. Being not a hearer of forgetfulness, but a doer of action. James says, Live out God's word, then you'll be blessed. Finally, James concludes our text by giving two specific examples of living out God's word. And we find it starting in verse 26. He says, if you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress, and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Here, James focuses on two things. First, the importance of being very careful in what we say. And you're thinking, but James, we just talked about this, right? Well, why are we talking about it again? Because James wants to drive home the huge importance that controlling the tongue has for the Christian life. When describing this idea, James actually uses an equestrian term. The literal meaning that he says is, keep a tight rein on the tongue. Now, people who like to ride horses, they tell me that the way it's supposed to work is that you control the direction of the horse through the rein and the bit. Where the rein goes, that's where the horse goes. But when I was a kid and someone tried to teach me how to ride a horse, it didn't turn out quite the same way for me. The next thing I do, I felt like I was hanging on for dear life as the horse went where it wanted to go, and it was going there fast. Now, I'm pretty sure it was my fault and I didn't do it correctly, but I learned that in a big hurry that horses are bigger than me, stronger than me, and can have a mind of their own. Kind of like our lives. So now, I love to drive cars. Why? Because they're a lot of fun to drive. And two, because my car always goes where I point the steering wheel. So if you're like me, you may need to think of James as saying that just like a car goes where the wheel is pointed, so your behavior follows where your tongue goes. And if you're not giving any attention to controlling what comes out of your mouth, but you claim you're living for God, you're just deceiving yourself. It's like saying, I don't have to pay attention to what I do with the steering wheel, the car will get there. In fact, what James says is your religion is worthless. Those are some rough words, James, come on. But he's super clear. If we claim to follow Jesus, we need to show love through our actions and our words. Second, James says that we need to care for the orphans and widows. In fact, it's not just James. In a number of places throughout the Bible, it says that we must look out for the widows and orphans. If you were a widow or an orphan in that first century, you had very little means of supporting yourself because, well, that society was set up so that it was the men who worked and provided income for their families. So when the husband and the father died, you were in real trouble. If you didn't have family that was willing to care for you, then you were stuck begging or selling yourself as a slave or starving, possibly worse. So when we talk about the orphans and widows, these were the groups in James' day, in that first century that were the ones who were powerless or had difficulty protecting themselves, or you could say, they represented those experiencing affliction or oppression. This value of giving active care or help to the powerless, the afflicted, the oppressed, it's something we see so clearly in the life of Jesus. Jesus identified with this group and he spent much of his ministry helping or empowering those that were afflicted and oppressed, either because of their circumstances, their physical condition, their nationality, or even their social status. The fact is that religious leaders actually derided Jesus himself because he spent so much time with those that they saw as beneath them. And again, if our religious practices aren't caring for people in this way, then they're deceptive. Why? Because they misrepresent God's character. And James says they're worthless. I don't know about you, but this makes me pause and really challenges me to evaluate my own life and practice. James is telling us that if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and you just act religious, it's worthless because Jesus' followers are going to live lives of love and compassion. Earlier this year, a guy visited crosswalks several times while he was here visiting in the area. And then he shared this story. He said, he didn't actually know what to do with Crosswalk at first because it was so different from what his experience with religion had been. Sure, the worship service was different, but it was more. See, he had grown up in a church where everyone was concerned with the outward forms of religion, but it didn't seem to change their lives. In fact, he said the three people who were the most outwardly devout religious people, the ones who always sat in the front row and did all the right things in church, were actually not nice people. His memory was that they were the most mean and unloving people that were there. Religion had not been something that actually positively impacted his life. It had just been about going through the motions, jumping through some hoops, making it look right. But he said that at Crosswalk, people were genuinely friendly and kind. They actually wanted to know how he was doing, and they cared about him. They spent time, they got to know him. He was listened to, valued, he was loved. He experienced Jesus. Today, Crosswalk, we find ourselves in the world that's immersed in a time unlike any we've seen before. And we have a lot in common with these Christians James is speaking to. Like James Day, there's stress and uncertainty. And so many people are scared or hurting or anxious or angry today. And right now, people need this experience of Jesus that our guest talked about. Today. Our churches may be locked up, but we're not. We can be out there. James tells us that we must be Christ's followers who have deeply experienced God and his word. We must see people as people, not categories or sides. We must listen to those who need to be heard. We must be slow to anger with those who are angry. We must ask forgiveness for those we've heard. We must look after those in distress and offer help to the ones who are oppressed. We must now be Jesus followers who are doers and not just hearers. And every chance we get, every chance we get, we have to love and we have to love well. Pray with me. Jesus, we are humbled to be called by you, to somehow represent you and the God of love and compassion and grace that you are, to be followers of yours that do just that. We follow. We actually do what you call us to do. We don't want it be enough just to know the right thing or say the right thing. We want to be people who are the embodiment of your love and your grace and compassion, especially in this time and place in this world where there is so much hurt and discouragement or fear or unknown. Lord, may people catch a glimpse of you as they are loved. May they catch a glimpse of your hope and your promise and of something better and may we be a part of that change that must take place in this world and we love you in your name we pray amen